Welcome to Addiction in the Family, Episode 47, What You Need to Know About Narcan. How has addiction affected your family? It robbed me of my father. Addictions affected my family in absolutely every way. Um, it has caused a lot of turmoil. It goes back to what I understand is at least three generations. It robbed my daughter of her mother. It robbed my mother of her daughter. Addiction has made our family quite challenging. Addiction affected my family tremendously. Uh, it's affected my relationship with my sister where I wouldn't I'd go for months without talking to her. It's a very difficult thing for everybody involved. It doesn't just affect the, the one individual. It's a disease that affects the whole family. Addiction is spread not only genetically through like some of my uh, relatives and I assume ancestors. It's uh, generational. I think of him every day. Welcome to Addiction in the Family, a podcast by and for family members of anyone with an addiction. My name is Casey Ariaga, and I'm a clinical social worker and addiction counselor at both Windmill Wellness Ranch and In Mind Out Emotional Wellness Center. And I'm the author of the books, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions, Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality, and the new children's book, Mommy's Getting Sober. My wife, Kira, and I were in our addictions for over 10 years together in a shared recovery for over twice that long. Join us as we offer experience, strength, and realistic hope about how you and your family can find recovery together. In this episode, we're going to learn the ins and outs of Narcan, the life-saving drug that can quickly stop an opioid overdose. We'll see how it works, how to recognize signs of an opioid overdose, how to give it to someone, why it's controversial to some people, and where you can find it over the counter and even for free. All this and more after a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Addiction in the Family is brought to you in part by the generous support of Windmill Wellness Ranch, an innovative treatment center located in the beautiful hill country of Texas and serving clients and their families from throughout the United States. I'm Shannon Mollish, CEO of Windmill Wellness Ranch. We offer the best in neurotechnology to heal the brain and the best therapy to heal the mind. Call us today at 210-762-6217. I'd also like to let you know that Windmill Wellness Ranch now has a free course available to any family or friends of anybody with any addiction. The course is available at windmillfamilycourse.com. Once you go and sign up for free, you'll get a weekly email pointing you towards blog posts, videos, and podcast episodes that help carry a message of hope. Sign up today at windmillfamilycourse.com. Welcome back. One of the reasons we're doing this episode right now is that Narcan, which is the number one anti-opiate overdose medication, has just been approved for over-the-counter use in the last couple of months. And this means that it's suddenly more in the spotlight, and that's a very good thing. We'll be looking at why it's a very good thing over the course of this episode. But as we move forward, I want you to just remember that Narcan is now something you no longer need a prescription to get. So anybody can pick it up at a drugstore, pharmacy, et cetera, and arguably should be carrying it around with you everywhere, especially if you or someone you love uses opiates, or even if you're in an area where people use opiates, which these days is practically everywhere. That's because opioids have become a part of everyday life and not necessarily through illegal use. In fact, they've been used for a very, very long time as one of humanity's most important and relied upon painkillers. That's their original use as far as humans are concerned. 
there's something that interacts with our brain in a way that helps to relieve pain. But here's the thing. For some people, they also produce euphoria. As I've often seen in my own work, they also help some people avoid emotional pain. So while the majority of humanity thinks of them as being a physical painkiller, for some people, they are an emotional painkiller. Which means that if anybody is in a lot of emotional pain, so for instance, if they have a lot of unresolved trauma, that sort of thing, then that becomes really irresistible. But here's the big catch. Even if you don't get emotional effects from it, even if you don't experience euphoria, opioids can just be naturally extremely addictive for the human brain. And that's because the opium poppy turns out to contain a molecule that mimics one of the chemicals that we rely on in our brain all the time. And thus, this molecule from the opium poppy perfectly fits one of the receptors in our brain that we rely on every day. We use it to help regulate pain in our bodies, to have a general sense of well-being, to feel motivated to do anything. You can imagine how powerful that can be. And so it was discovered probably thousands of years ago that the opium poppy made people feel really good. That simple fact has gone on to reshape the borders of nations, geopolitics, and countless human lives, both individually and collectively. So why are we paying so much attention to it right now if it's been around for all of this time? Well, that's partly because human beings are really good at purifying things and manufacturing things. And both of those uh, facts have come into play in this. And that's because we weren't satisfied with what we could get out of the opium poppy all by itself. We had to go and purify it and purify it and purify it until we ended up with a drug that was originally a brand name, but now is just known mostly as a street drug, which is heroin. Yeah, you heard that right. Heroin was originally a brand name of a very efficient delivery system for morphine. It just got it purely into the brain so well that we decided in most places we should make that illegal because it was so effective. But of course, human beings being human beings, we didn't stop there. More recently, we have discovered how to artificially manufacture opiates that are not reliant on the opium poppy and are so purified that some of them, like fentanyl, are 50 times more powerful than heroin. So while opium was originally considered to be the scourge of the earth, then heroin was considered to be the worst drug you could get hooked on. Fentanyl now is 50 times more powerful than that. And that is why when you go into a web search engine right now and you put in opiate, the computer may fill in the word crisis behind that or overdose because this is happening so often. In fact, the Center for Disease Control or CDC says from 1999 to 2021, there have been six times as many drug overdose deaths. And most of those, 75%, involve an opioid of some kind. Just from 2020 to 2021, the number of deaths involving opioids went up 15%. Now, here's what's really interesting about that, though. The number of prescription opioid deaths stayed about the same. Heroin overdose deaths went down 32%, but the ones involving synthetic opioids like fentanyl or tramadol went up 22%. In other words, it's the synthetic opioids right now that are killing people at an ever-increasing rate. It's gotten so bad out there that the largest of the Mexican drug cartels has actually said they will kill anyone in Mexico who is manufacturing fentanyl. 
Now, they're not really doing that for the good of the public health, and they plan to fill in those gaps with other drugs. But the fact is that the, so much pressure has come down on the cartels about creating fentanyl and how many people are dying from it that the major cartel doesn't want a big crackdown on them, so they're cracking down on everyone else instead. And this highlights the fact that people are paying attention to this crisis. Starting in the 1990s with prescription opioid overdose deaths, then moving into the 2010s with heroin overdose deaths, and now in the 2020s with synthetic opioid overdose deaths, a lot of people are trying to find some way to fight back. This has led to massive efforts from federal, state, tribal, local governments, non-governmental organizations like community action groups and churches, and even individuals who are just trying to make a difference. This is coming through everything from large-scale public information campaigns, individual outreach efforts, conversations that people have between each other, family members reaching out to each other, and anybody trying to find better treatment alternatives. In fact, we recently had some state senators come in from another state to tour Windmill Wellness Ranch so they can learn how to improve treatment in their home state, where opiate overdose deaths have become a scourge. Even big pharmaceutical companies, which in the 1990s were arguably part of the problem in manufacturing widespread opioid pills, are now getting into the fray to try and help and enter naloxone. This is the life-saving basic ingredient that you find under the brand name of Narcan. And naloxone is life-saving because it does something that no other medication has done before, which is that it stops an opioid overdose in its tracks. And it begins working within seconds. Now, the absolute fastest is if you use an IV injection of naloxone. Second fastest is if you use an intermuscular injection of naloxone. And then there's the nasal spray, which doesn't work quite as quickly, but within two to three minutes should restore normal breathing. Now that would make the IV version the obvious choice, except that only really works well if you're a medical provider. Now, the intramuscular injection sounds kind of okay, but most people don't want to carry a needle around with them. But a nasal spray, a simple thing that you can just put in somebody's nostril and pump real quickly, that sounds like something practically anyone can do. And that is part of what makes Narcan so appealing and so effective. You see, naloxone itself was patented in the mid-1960s and approved for opioid overdose use in the early 1970s, but it wasn't until 2015 that Narcan came out and gave a really easy way to administer the medication. And actually, studies have shown so far that Narcan, the brand, is actually easier and more effective to use for more people. And that's why so many people are still loyal to the brand, even though it's been available generic for a long time. But here's the catch. Since 2015, up until the last couple of months, you've needed a prescription to buy it. Now, that doesn't mean that nobody's been able to get their hands on it. It's just been a little bit difficult. With the new FDA regulations, though, anybody can get it. They can buy it off shelves or directly from a pharmacy, and that makes things a lot easier for such a life-saving medication that even your grandmother can probably figure out. So we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how to recognize an opioid overdose and what Narcan can do to stop it. You have a loved one who's just gotten sober. They're trying to convince you that this time is different, that they've really changed. But their words fall on deaf ears. So much trust has been lost over the course of their addiction. Soberlink can help. Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring system is designed to help loved ones get sober while rebuilding trust with friends and family. 
small enough to fit in their purse or pocket, and discreet enough to use in public, Soberlink devices combine facial recognition, tamper detection, and real-time results so you know instantly that a loved one is sober and working toward their recovery goals. Visit www.soberlink.com family to sign up and receive $50 off a device. Welcome back. So let's look at how to recognize an opioid overdose. Now, according to the World Health Organization, or WHO, in 2019, about 600,000 people worldwide died from drugs. About 80% of those were related to opioids, and about 25% of them were directly an opioid overdose. And of course, several times that many people had an opioid overdose that just didn't turn out to be fatal, at least not that time. So how would you recognize if this was happening in somebody around you? Well, there are three major things to look out for. One is to look at their pupils. Are they shrunken down to tiny little pinpricks or tiny points? This is a common sign of opiate use. The second thing to look out for is whether or not they're conscious. Somebody who's having an opioid overdose is probably heading towards or in a state of unconsciousness. And the third thing is to check their breathing. Opioid overdose happens typically because somebody stops breathing. One of the effects of having too much opioids in your system is that it actually depresses the part of your brain that controls breathing and breathing becomes difficult or stops altogether. And there are a number of factors which actually put someone at higher risk for an overdose for opioids. So if you know this about someone that is around you or someone you love, these are things to look out for. Now, the most obvious one is if they have an opioid use disorder, which is say that they are addicted to opioids if they take opioids by injection, so any kind of IV use. If they haven't used opioids in a while, say they've been coming out of treatment, and then they start using again, and this is unfortunately something that can be common as people go back to using at their previous dosage, and but they no longer have the tolerance for it. Another one is if they're taking prescription opioids without medical supervision. If they've been prescribed a really high dosage, say 100 milligrams of morphine or the equivalent more per day, if you're aware that they're using opiates along with other drugs, so especially things like alcohol or any other central nervous system depressant, because those things can also depress the part of the brain that controls breathing. And then somewhat less commonly, but if you're aware that if they have a medical condition like HIV or liver or lung diseases or any mental health conditions, those things can all also put someone at higher risk for opioid overdose. So if you or anyone you know fits in any of those categories, it's probably a good idea to consider carrying Narcan. In fact, the CDC recommends carrying Narcan if you or anyone you know simply uses opioids on a regular basis, whether it's by prescription or not. So let's say you're doing as suggested and you are carrying Narcan. What do you actually do if someone's having an overdose? Well, first and foremost, you want to make sure that's what's actually happening. So the first thing you want to do is yell, wake up, loudly. Shake them a little bit gently to see if they'll wake up. Now, if they're not going to wake up, then we want to move on to step two. And that's where you give the first dose. So you put your thumb on the plunger, put the applicator into either nostril and push firmly so they get the full dose into their nostril. The good news is they don't need to be breathing for this to work because actually it's not going into the lungs. It's absorbed into the nasal mucosa. Now, keep in mind that it can take up to two to three minutes for it to take the full effect even though it starts acting immediately. So you want to take that time and call 911. 
Let them know the full situation. Now, you might be a little bit nervous sometimes thinking, "Uh uh-oh, I'm telling them my loved one or someone here on the street has had an opiate overdose. What's that going to mean for them? Are they going to get in trouble for that? Well, the good news is is that many states have what are known as Good Samaritan laws. You might want to look it up to see where you live to see how true this is where you are. But a lot of times that protects you as a person who's trying to help, but it can also protect the person having the overdose. In fact, sometimes law enforcement will overlook, or the law will say they should overlook, look, any kind of drug use, just so we can save their life in the moment, and that will keep people from being afraid to call 911. Now, this all assumes that you are somewhere in the United States. If you're not, then adjust these instructions accordingly, but one way or the other, do reach out for medical help as soon as you've given that first dose of Narcan. Now, once the two to three minutes have gone by, you want to check on the person. You're probably watching them intently anyway, and you want to see really not just do they start breathing again, but do they wake up? Do they become conscious? That's really important because if they don't within two to three minutes, then you want to give them a second dose of Narcan. Now, the good news is you can't actually overdose on Narcan, so there's no maximum amount you can give somebody. There's just no point in giving it once they've woken up unless they start to look sleepy. If they start to look like they're going to drift off again, you may need to administer another dose. You can keep on giving doses every two to three minutes until they're fully awake. Now, if they do wake up, they may seem a little embarrassed or off-put, and they may just say like, hey, you know what? I'm good to go. I'm going to go ahead and stand up. I'm going to get out of here. Try and discourage that. Try and stay with them until emergency medical services arrives or they're in professional medical care, and then we can move forward from there. So now that we know how to administer Narcan, we're going to take another quick break, hear from one of our sponsors, and then when we come back, we're going to look at why there's actually some controversy around Narcan and... Assuming you want to carry it, where you can get some for free. Among our sponsors, the most important one is you. We are so grateful for your support in our mission to help people with addiction and their families find recovery. Here are some ways you can help. I have a website at caseyauthor.com where you can find all the various ways I'm working to spread a message of hope for anyone struggling with addiction and anyone who loves them. There you can find videos, interviews I've given on other people's podcasts, information on my books, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions, Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality, and my newest book, Mommy's Getting Sober, a children's book that also includes a guide for caregivers on how to talk to kids about addiction. All three are available on Amazon and other retailers as both paperback and ebook. If you have read them, please tell a friend or anyone you think might be helped by their message. There's also a link to help support us on Patreon.com. Your subscriptions help make all this possible. If you'd like to become a subscriber, visit Patreon.com and look up Addiction and the Family. Thanks again. We couldn't do this without you. Welcome back. So as I mentioned earlier, there's actually controversy around Narcan, and the reason for that is simply that it is so effective. And because of this, it ends up in a little bit of a debate between people who see addiction from a harm reduction lens and those who go about it from a behavior reduction lens. So people from a harm reduction lens say, you know what, people are going to use drugs no matter what, so what we really need to do is educate people and give out supplies, such as clean needles and Narcan. Those coming from a behavior reduction lens say, you know what, we need to stop people from doing this in the first place, so yes, education has its place, but the bigger efforts have to go into discouraging people from using drugs. So that's going to say, well, maybe we need to have stiffer punishments, larger penalties, we need to be trying to cut off the supply, and we need to be able to talk people out of using drugs, get them into treatment, get them to go to meetings, find some way to keep them from doing what they're doing. 
even if it means the treatment or meetings or things that are court-mandated. Now, both sides have a point, and both sides kind of have a little bit of the moral high ground as far as they're concerned. The harm reduction people say, you know what? People don't set out to become addicted. They may be genetically vulnerable. There could be societal factors. They could be reacting to childhood trauma. And I will say, as somebody in the addiction field, would say those things are all true. From a behavior reduction perspective, there's a concern that all of this gives people excuses and even permission for bad behavior. Because often a behavior reduction approach really comes from a perspective that sees this more as a moral failing and a series of bad choices. Now, I can also agree that addiction does really add up to a series of bad choices. It's just that those choices are heavily influenced, more so than we'd like to admit, by things like genetics and environment and early childhood trauma. All of which argues that it's not really a moral failing, it is a medical condition, and yet people still have to be responsible for their own feelings and choices. Which means that on a practical level, most approaches actually include some harm reduction and some behavior reduction strategies. So where does Narcan come into all of this? Well, as mentioned earlier, it's so effective that for some people it seems to take away the natural consequences of opioid use. In other words, if opioid users are no longer so afraid of death and just think like, well, overdose may happen, but Narcan will save me, then we're all but taking away one of the most effective deterrents against opioid use. Now, there are two points of view that might be particularly illuminating about this. That of first responders, such as firefighters, paramedics, police, who are most likely to administer Narcan, and chronic opioid users, who are most likely to receive it. In reading through research around this, I was interested to notice that there was really kind of a mixed response from first responders. For instance, one study of an Arizona police department that tracked officers for about a year found that at first they were kind of skeptical and a little skittish about carrying Narcan, but after a year they were feeling a lot more confident and many had used it effectively. The author of that study confidently proclaimed that lives were going to be saved as a result. But it turns out that's not all there is to first responder attitudes around Narcan. Another study looked through the comment sections on first responder websites to get a more candid and uncensored view on first responder attitudes around Narcan. And what they found there was at times a lot more negative and perhaps even hateful towards people who were suffering with opioid addiction. This included comments that opioid users are scum and that they should be allowed to die so that emergency efforts could be used for, quote, those who really need them, unquote. Now, needless to say, this is not the only kind of comment that appeared, and some of those frustrations could be understandable given that emergency responders might find sometimes people that would have a needle in one hand and a dose of Narcan in the other passed out on the street, as though to say, save me from my own behavior. And this may be why, even in the mainstream press, some law enforcement officials have come forward and said they're not going to have officers carry Narcan because they feel like they're just condoning addictive behavior by taking away the natural consequences. So what about the view of the people who are actually using the opiates themselves, the ones who are most likely to receive Narcan? Well, in a paper that was based on interviews of heavy opiate users, they found that in general, they had all heard of Narcan by the brand name, but they didn't necessarily know what naloxone was, the generic form. They all had a positive view of Narcan, had seen it used on others, and many had had it used on them. All of those folks said that it was actually a terrible experience, not because they saved their lives, but because taking Narcan can feel like 
being suddenly thrust into the absolute worst of the withdrawals, and that's partly because Narcan works by blocking the opiate receptors, so their brain was suddenly thrust into a state where it felt like it was deprived of something it desperately needed, because all of our brains have a natural opioid system, and if that feels blocked, we feel terrible. The people interviewed said they would hate to go through that again, but if they were overdosing, they hoped somebody would use it on them anyway. Several of the people interviewed said they had in fact used Narcan on somebody else, but they were still cautious about carrying it on them because there was some stigma and they were a little afraid to ruin someone else's high. And that may be because there are some people who have been known to walk around with Narcan and just dose anybody who seems to be in the middle of opiate use, regardless of whether or not they've checked for withdrawal signs. Is that a malicious thing to do? Is it life-saving? Is it morally correct? These are questions that not anyone can easily answer. As a final note from the interviews in that study, it's worth noting that many of the people who had been dosed with Narcan said they did go back to opiate use later, one even used as soon as they could after the Narcan wore off, which they said left them feeling a lot worse about themselves. But what's really important is to notice that not one person who was interviewed said that the availability of Narcan made them any more likely to use or influence their decision to use opiates. So having talked through all of this, should you carry Narcan? Obviously, this is a personal decision, but let's say you've decided it's for you. So a couple things to look at. One is that, as you heard in the instructions, you often have to give more than one dose of Narcan, or at least be prepared to do so. And that means you'd have to carry several doses with you. Now, Narcan is kind of small, not a big deal there, but it is not inexpensive. A box of Naloxone, which carries two doses, currently retails for about $40 to $45. So while you don't need a prescription, you do need enough resources to make sure that you can carry what amounts to about $50 to $100 worth of naloxone at all times if you're going to follow all the instructions. Of course, you hope it's not going to come up very often anyway, but for some people the cost may be prohibitive. Or you may find that in your area there are resources to get Narcan for free. Now obviously this is going to vary by where you happen to live, but a quick search may turn up some good results. For instance, when I looked here in Texas, where I'm currently recording, I quickly found the Texas Targeted Opioid Response. This is run by the Texas Health and Human Services Commission using federal funding from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA. So the Texas Targeted Opioid Response, or TTOR, does a lot of education, lining people up with treatment, working on prevention efforts, but also giving out Narcan for free. Now, they don't give it out directly, but they actually give funding and resources through, for instance, the University of Texas or UT, both in Austin and San Antonio, here in the area where I'm recording. In fact, in the TTOR website, I had to poke around a little bit, but I found a spot that said, more naloxone, please, which then took me to a site run by the University of Texas San Antonio School of Nursing, which had a big orange button that said, free naloxone, and then parentheses, Narcan. When I clicked on the button, it took me to a survey, and at the bottom said, would I like to order a box, which would be two doses of Narcan, for free. But it turns out that the reach of TTOR goes beyond that, because there are local organizations such as Corazon Ministries in San Antonio that then receive funding and free Narcan, and then take that out into the streets. So Corazon Ministries offers things like recovery coaching, along with free Narcan, getting directly into the streets in the communities where people are at highest risk. In fact, they've got it mapped out which areas of the city are in the most trouble when it comes to the opioid crisis, and they target their efforts there. All of this shows how federal, state, and local groups are working together to help get Narcan into people's hands to save lives directly. 
So if you want to be part of the effort, check out resources in your area through a quick internet search or try a website such as www.narcan-finder.com. That's narcan-finder.com, which has an interactive map showing where you can find it in your area. So to recap, Narcan is a life-saving and highly effective antidote to opioid overdose. It's now available over-the-counter, it's easy to use, and if need be, you can find it for free. Thanks for being with us through another episode of Addiction and the Family. As they say in many recovery meetings, take what you liked and leave the rest. Go out and explore the possibilities for recovery in your life and give your loved ones the space and dignity to make their own choices. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. It means a lot to us. If you know anyone else who could use what we have to offer, please tell them about addiction to the family. If you have comments about this podcast, have a question you'd like to answer it on the show, or want to contribute your voice, or just want to say hi, you can write to us at addictionofthefamily at gmail.com. We're also happy to be your friend on Facebook, and we can be found tweeting on Twitter. Addiction in the Family is produced, written, and engineered by Kira and Casey Ariaga, with music by Casey.